The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. It's March 30th, the time is 4.05, and on behalf of the team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Nick Weaver. And I'm Mirtha Donna Storg, bringing you this special episode of Eye on the Triangle in honor of International Women's Month here at the tail end of March. For today's Eye on the Triangle, we'll be bringing you a look at the events in the week ahead with the community calendar by Peter Svizzini. And Jake Winters brings you Snowverated. This week he reviews the film Brother. As always, the esteemed Nick Weaver brings you the Modest Mouth Review. For today's album, he reviews Honeyblood, the eponymous debut of the all-female band Honeyblood. Taking a break from pop culture, this week Jamie Hollow will be doing a special piece about Greerfest, a music festival in honor of Emma Greer de Biasi, who died from cancer this past weekend. Looking back at women's clothing through the ages, Marissa Jordan will be taking today taking a look today at the uh, history of the bra and its societal impact on women. But first, as always, Saif Hassan has the news beyond the headlines, and Kevin Cronk gives us a look at the news around North Carolina. I'm Kevin Cronk, and this is the North Carolina News Service. While it often takes months to advance new bills through the North Carolina State Assembly, Governor McCrory has signed legislation lawmakers pushed through this week with sweeping speed. The State Assembly passed legislation HB2 that blocks cities from allowing transgender people from using public bathrooms for the sex they identify as, as well as restricting cities from passing broader non-discrimination laws. Reverend Jasmine Beach Ferrara with the Campaign for Southern Equality predicts the law will end up costing more than just people's rights. As with Amendment 1, we saw the state had to expend significant resources to defend an unconstitutional law in court. The lawyers are exploring whether legal action would be appropriate regarding HB2. North Carolina has spent more than $100,000 defending Amendment 1, which defined marriage as between a man and a woman. That was ultimately nullified by the U.S. Supreme Court's action regarding same-sex marriage. After signing this week's legislation, Governor McCrory tweeted that laws allowing people who are transgender to use public facilities assigned to their identified gender, quote, defied common sense. That's why I signed the bipartisan bill to stop it, end quote. In addition to its impact on the LGBT community, HB2 also eliminates a production under the state law for employees who are fired because of their race religion, color, national origin, age, sex, or disability. Beach Ferrara says passing legislation she predicts will ultimately be defeated in the court system is counterproductive and not what lawmakers were elected to do. What we see here is a systemic pattern of a group of legislators pushing through laws that are based on one thing and one thing only, and that's animus. This is not what our elected officials have been elected to do. Their job is not to cynically use the instruments of government to target people. According to the Campaign for Southern Equality, there are currently 90 anti-LGBT bills at some stage of consideration in southern states. This week, Tennessee lawmakers took a bill that would restrict transgender students' access to bathrooms out of committee so it will not advance to a vote. Thousands of North Carolinians are addicted to prescription painkillers, and as new laws limit their prescription and availability, 
Opioid addicts are turning to the street drug heroin to feed their addiction. Dr. Chris Flanders works in the emergency department at Mission Hospital in Asheville. We're seeing far more folks coming in with heroin overdoses. Over time, what's happened is the cost of pain pills is more than the cost of heroin. That's a big part of the driving force behind this trend. According to the North Carolina Department of Public Health, the number of heroin overdose deaths increased by more than six-fold since 1999. In 2014, the most recent data available, more than 28,000 people died nationwide. Because heroin addiction is often the result of someone looking for an opioid after prescribed painkiller is no longer available, some medical experts are exploring other pain management options that are non-addictive. Those include medicine administered by pump, nerve blocks, cognitive therapy, and mindfulness techniques. According to the National Alliance on Mental Health, North Carolina is one of only 12 states that cut mental health funding in this budget year, slashing it by $110 million. Flanders says a lack of mental health support, as well as addiction programs, is propagating the issue. One thing that's glaring is the huge lack of treatment facilities and huge lack of funds for treatment facilities statewide. Substance abuse, along with mental health, has been steadily defunded by our state legislature over the years, and we are reaping the consequences of it. In February of this year, President Obama proposed more than $1 billion in additional funding to address the nationwide issue of prescription drug and heroin abuse. The number of admissions for heroin addiction is also on the rise, with that number more than doubling in the last 10 years across the state. That's according to an analysis of data from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration via the health news website Health Grove, which ranks North Carolina number nine when it comes to admissions to treatment facilities. This has been a North Carolina News Service. I'm Kevin Cronk, and this is Iron the Triangle. I'm Saif Hassan, and this is your News Beyond the Headlines. Iran's top leader has said anyone who thinks negotiations are more important than building a missile system are traitors, his official website reports. Ayatollah Ali Khamenei's comments appear to be a response to a statement from a former president who said discussions were the way forward. These statements come amid concern among world powers over a series of ballistic missile tests by Iran. Iran denies the tests breach a UN resolution on its missile program. The resolution, passed last year, calls on Iran not to develop or test ballistic missiles capable of carrying nuclear weapons. Iran test-fired a nuclear weapon-capable ballistic missile in October of 2015 and carried out more ballistic missile tests earlier this month. Iran's missile program was not banned under a deal last year with world powers, which curbed its nuclear activity, but the call to desist forms part of a resolution endorsing the agreement. On Wednesday, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon said the recent missile test had caused alarming concern, but that it would be up to the UN Security Council to decide what to do. In comments carried on his website, Iran's Ayatollah said any negotiations should be backed by military strength. People say tomorrow's world is a world of negotiations and not a world of missiles. If they say this thoughtlessly, it shows that they are thoughtless. However, if this is intentional, then this is treachery. The statement comes days after former President Akbar Hashemi Rafsanjani tweeted that the future is in dialogue, not missiles. Mr. Rafsanjani is close to the politically moderate President Hassan Rouhani, whose domestic position was enhanced by the success of the nuclear negotiations in getting sanctions lifted. 
Moving to Australia, a top university has rejected claims it is trying to rewrite history. Students are being encouraged to use the term "invaded" rather than "settled" or "discovered" and avoid the word "Aborigines." The University of New South Wales Indigenous Terminology Guide states that Australia was invaded, occupied, and colonized, but UNSW says it does not mandate what language can and cannot be used. The guide suggests referring to Captain James Cook as the first Englishman to map the continent's east coast is more appropriate than referring to his discovery of Australia. A spokesperson said for the university, Captain James Cook claimed possession of the east coast of what is now Australia on behalf of the British Crown in 1770, following more than 160 years of mapping and exploration, mainly by the Dutch. There were already more than 250 tribes of Aboriginal people living on the land, each with their own language, customs, and territories. Then began a process of colonization and land confiscation, with denied Aboriginal people rights to land, citizenship, and equal status. Rights which, in many cases, were only finally bestowed back in current decades. The authors of the terminology guide explained their approach at the start, saying that while all staff and students rely heavily upon language, it is also a vehicle for the expression of discrimination and prejudice, and cannot be regarded as neutral or an unproblematic medium. In what follows, students are instructed to use the terms "Indigenous Australian people" or "Aboriginal peoples" in place of "Aborigines" or "the Aboriginal people" to avoid implying that all Indigenous Australians are the same. The guide also lists words such as "primitive," "simple," "native," and "prehistoric" as less appropriate than "complex" and "diverse" societies. Use of the term "nomadic" is discouraged on the grounds that it implies that Indigenous Australians were not permanently settled, rationalizing the idea that the land was just there for the taking by English settlers. These guidelines have sparked outrage from more conservative Australians in TV and radio. Conservative radio host Alan Jones argues that political correctness is anathema to genuine scholarship. I'm Saif Hassan, and this has been your News Beyond the Headlines. Since March is Women's History Month, I looked into one aspect of history that all women have dealt with for centuries: the bra. Women have been wearing garments designed to alter the appearance of their breasts since ancient Greece, but the modern brassiere started to become popular in the 1930s. Today, the bra is a staple of a modern woman's closet. In the Middle Ages, women were expected to bind their breasts for modesty reasons. Women's clothing around that time was designed for a purpose and not fashion. So a tight sports bra-like garment made sense. During the Renaissance, the bra was a symbol of wealth. The corset showed up around 1500 and was used for fashion as well as support. The emphasis became on form and not function, and corsets around the time focused on making the abdomen flat and adding a push-up bra-like effect. With the corset, women could now have the coveted and fashionable small waist and ample bust body type. The modern bra was invented in 1863 by Lumen L. Chapman in Camden, New Jersey, as a corset substitute. Historians refer to this invention as the proto bra. Interestingly, World War I was one of the driving forces to end the corset. All extra metal was needed for war efforts, and corsets became obsolete. By the 1930s, the term cup was used to describe bra size, and two companies. Model and Famous began using the modern alphabetical sizing system. Bras have also been tied to political movements. During the 1960s, in the midst of second wave feminism, bras were viewed as oppressive devices of the patriarchy. This view was fueled by feminist writers like Germaine Greer, 
who wrote that, bras are a ludicrous invention, but if you make brawlessness a rule, you're subjecting yourself to yet another repression. In 1968, the famous bra burning event happened at the Miss America pageant. 400 young women staged a protest where they burned items like bras, fake eyelashes, and things that could be used for female objectification in trash cans. Today, there's a social movement coined Free the Nipple that aims to normalize the image of breasts in mainstream America and legalize female toplessness. Women wear bras for fashion and health reasons, but recent studies may show that wearing a bra may not actually increase long-term breast health. A study was conducted by a French professor that followed 330 women aged 18 to 35 over 15 years. The study found that women who did not wear a bra actually had fewer stretch marks and better long-term breast health. But why? Not wearing a bra actually protects a woman's breasts from gravity. It forces the woman to have better posture and helps her form muscles under the breasts that help with support. The bra has evolved so much over the past few centuries, and with new movements like Free the Nipple and the popularity of bralettes and bandeaus among the younger generation, maybe our society will revert to where the bra began or eventually no bra at all. Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. This weekend, a music festival will be held in Greensboro called Greer Fest. The festival is a celebration of Emma Greer DiBiase's life, who passed away over the weekend after a three-year battle with cancer, which had spread to much of her body. Greer was 16 years old and from Wilmington. She was diagnosed with cancer in 2013 and underwent extensive chemotherapy in Chapel Hill and was eventually declared cancer-free in 2014. Unfortunately, in April of last year, the cancer returned and worsened to a point where doctors told her at the beginning of the year she had anywhere from three weeks to three months left to live. Throughout her battle, Greer maintained a very positive outlook on life, creating a vivid social media life with her Vine account, Giberton. She amassed over 200,000 followers and over 200 million loops on her Vine account and could very easily be considered a Vine star. Greer formed many relationships with people across the country and within her own home state of North Carolina and touched many people with her extreme positivity and optimism despite the difficulties she faced. She even formed a band called Mesto and got to perform in January of 2016 as a lead singer. Greer Fest was created by Cameron Phipps and Leon Rash as a way to help raise money for the medical funds Greer's family has endured. The festival's lineup is primarily composed of many North Carolina hardcore bands as Greer was a fan of the scene. Bands include North Carolina heavy hitters Society Sucker, Recently United Advent, Future Primitive, Joy, and many more. The festival will be held at the Blind Tiger in Greensboro on Saturday, April 2nd. All proceeds from the festival will go to Greer's medical funds. More information will be found at the Blind Tiger's website. This has been Jamie Hollow with Eye on the Triangle. I'm now signing off. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Weaver of Eye on the Triangle, and you are listening to the Modest Mouth Review. It's International Women's Month, and with it comes both a slew of Deadpool movie-related memes, as well as today's specialty show. Today's album will thus be Honey Blood by Honey Blood, a female rock duo from Scotland. Now, I know this album came out back in 2014, so it's a little bit older than usual, but it seems like a good fit for the show as well as our special episode today. So, as always, the first question is, who are Honey Blood? Glad you asked, as always. 
Honeyblood are, as previously mentioned, a Scottish indie rock duo and are new to the scene with their eponymous debut, Honeyblood, being their most recent release. Technically, they started off with a few lo-fi releases that can be chalked up as singles, but this is their first release actually resembling an album. Their bio says they draw inspiration from bands like The Breeders and PJ Harvey, and I can definitely feel that after listening to the album. It's not the strongest resemblance ever, but they have that gusto that came with 90s female power bands, and some of the same groove. That's about where the similarities end, though, as Honeyblood are 100% their own band with their own style. Which leads us on to the music itself. In a word, Honeyblood is bittersweet. The vocals are laid delicately but confidently over slightly distorted guitar and a consistent, perky beat. In contrast, the lyrics are occasionally snarky and sort of bite at that sweet sound previously created. When the lyrics are more sweet, the guitars and beat pick up just a little bit of that snark. It's hard to properly describe without just letting you hear it, but imagine your stereotypical manic pixie dream girl archetype. Then imagine she's out of your league and that you both know it and so she spends most of her time chiding you like your inner conscience, or strongly, depending on the song. There you have it. That's basically Honey Blood in a nutshell. It's not the most consistent description, but it feels right to me, so I'm gonna stick with it. Anyways, that sort of light chiding sound is especially prevalent in songs like Bud, which is gentler for a rock song, but still has a bit of jolt in its step. Lyrically, this album has a great diversity. I've talked before about how I hate when an entire album just talks about being in love, how great love is, etc. Basically, I really admire when a band can get me interested or invested in the song and lyrics despite being tangentially related to relationships. Honeyblood manages to do that. The topics for each song range from love to longing to anger, disgust, and more. The language used flows well and sounds almost poetic sometimes. It's not the best lyricism I've ever heard, but it's a great above average, so I'll give it to them. There are a few places where the lyrics really shine through though, like in the song Super Rat, which is a delightful song about being disgusted by another person. That song has the catchiest descriptions and insults I've ever heard without overpowering the music. It's quirky and fun without interfering with your ability to take the song seriously, which is a job well done, I say. Moving on from lyricism, the instrumentation on this album is about average. It's not going to blow you out of the water, but I don't really think it's fair to expect that sort of musical complexity from a two-piece. Not because they're not capable, but more so because it's just not what you come to a two-piece for. You listen for the laid-back guitar and drums that come together perfectly to complement the vocals and talented composition. This is exactly what Honeyblood does, and they do it well. While their songs are simple and easy to approach for a casual listener, they're also fairly unique sounding. Songs like Killer Bangs and Choker have this unusual syncopation to them that I really enjoy. It adds a layer of complexity and shows intelligence in writing. At the same time, the songs are still really easy to enjoy and consume from a casual standpoint because the whole song is just really cohesive. Everything comes together perfectly. When listening to Honeyblood, you'll feel as though the band is just one big instrument. The guitar, the drums, the vocals, it all just blends together flawlessly to create a really entertaining and enjoyable finished product. As always, no album is perfect, but I feel like I've covered the band's shortcomings at least a little bit through the review, so I'll keep this section short. My only real complaint about the band is that the music isn't really revolutionary. It's unique and enjoyable, and that's absolutely fine. Honestly, it's not even a real complaint. You don't have to be revolutionary or scene-changing to be good music, you know? 
These gals have a great style, a solidified, cohesive sound, and above all, their music is enjoyable to listen to. Keep that up, and Honeyblood should be good for like three more albums without changing much anything. Like any band, all they really need to do in the future is keep experimenting with new stuff so that they don't get stale. Not on a grand scale, but just little tweaks here and there to make their sound ever so slightly different. That's the way to go. For my final rating on a scale of negative 2 to 7, I give this album a 4. Above average, easy listening. Kinda like a smooth can of soda on a warm summer day. Just hits the spot, you feel? Once again, the band is Honeyblood, and the album is Honeyblood. You know what? Just Google Honeyblood. You'll find it. That's all for today, folks. I've been Nick, though I'm also known as Klesk, Lens, Meerkat, or just that dude who can't dress himself properly in public. I'm less fond of that last one. As always, you can send in a review request by tweeting at WKNC underscore EOT. Thanks again for listening in, and I'll speak to you all again next time. This is Jacob Winters for Eye on the Triangle. This is Snowverated, and this week I will be taking a look at the Russian film Brother. This film was released in 1997 and had many of the cliches that come along with the 90s. I was surprised to see just how much some American cultural cliches translated directly to Russian ones. There was club music, eating at McDonald's, and talk about LSD. Things I might have expected to see in a movie made in the U.S. of a similar style. The differences were really what made the movie very interesting to watch. The style of music is similar to what American music was like, but it used a whole different set of chords as a standard. You can hear the influence from American styles, but you can definitely tell that it's different, enough to be called its own style of music. The story of the movie was pretty straightforward, but there's a lot left to subtext that makes it hard enough to follow to where it keeps you paying attention. It is exactly what you would expect this kind of trauma to be like, complete with leaving home to see a forgotten relative with the tough but fair protagonist fighting the multitude of goons for the typical 90s mob boss. While it was a stereotypical movie, I was still able to get into it. Stereotypical does not necessarily mean bad, and if there is enough nuance and attention to detail in a film, it will always be enjoyable. The characters were well developed. The development of the main character was not radical, as he began a good man and ended one, but he came harder through the movie. The characters around him were interesting to see how they changed, and his interactions with them changed over time as well. I felt that the attention to detail of the characters' individual personalities were done very well. Each had distinct traits and really did something I would have considered out of their character. The acting was not the best in many cases, but that goes for a lot of the same genre and time period, so it can be considered par for the course. The sets and cinematography of the film were probably my favorite part of this movie. They had some great shots of the city they were in, and the rooms were all decorated in a telling and interesting manner. The posters in the main character's bedroom tell of his interests, and he later speaks of them to someone else in the story. This attention to small detail can be found throughout the movie, and I found it really interesting and captivating. It really made it feel like a real place.
As it was a foreign film, seeing the Russian setting was really going to be interesting enough. But they did a good job of showing the city, the different kinds of bridges, and pulling right up on the beach at one point, which is something I found very interesting. I was surprised that a movie of this type would take the time to put in scenic shots of the city, but was glad and I felt it really gave a feeling to the surroundings. Another attention to detail that I can't be sure was on purpose or not was the gray skies. The skies in Russia may usually be gray, but I have no idea. There are many times when the skies are dreary there, and it rains a lot, and this adds an overall effect to the movie that really fit well with the rest of the story. Overall, I would give this movie a rating of 7 out of 10. The writing was well done, as well as the cinematography. The only things that I felt were lacking was the acting, which I can't say was terrible, and the story could have been a little bit more developed, but was very satisfying. It may be slightly harder to find this movie, but I'm sure if you search around the internet, you could find some way to access it. The Russian title of this film is Brat, which is Russian for brother, and the movie was written and directed by Alexei Balabanov. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Eye on the Triangle and Snow Rated. Enjoy the rest of your day. Good afternoon to you listeners out there. I'm Peter Swazeni bringing you this week's community calendar, an Eye on the Triangle segment informing you of cool events occurring on campus or around the Raleigh-Durham area for the upcoming week. First up on the calendar is a cookout to knock out ALS. This cookout is a fundraiser hosted by the Delta Zeta and Kappa Alpha Order that raises money for the ALS Association. This event will provide dinner, live music, fun games, and raffle prizes. It'll take place Wednesday, March 30th from 5.30 to 8.00. 830, and this event will be hosted by both the Delta Zeta and Kappa Alpha Order House, located next to each other on Greek Court. The tickets to this cookout will be $5 and can be purchased from any Delta Zeta sister or Kappa Alpha Order brother. The location of the cookout is 2309 South Fraternity Court. Again, this event will be this evening from 530 to 830. DHL Library will be having a film screening this evening. You may go watch The Maltese Falcon. This is a 1941 classic film starring Humphrey Bogard and Mary Astor. This film is about a private detective which takes on a case involving him and three eccentric criminals, a glorious liar, and their quest for a priceless statuette. The runtime is approximately 1 hour 40 minutes. This screening is a collaboration between the NCSU Libraries and the Wake County Public Libraries. Again, this film screening will be this evening from 7 to 8.45 in the D.H. Hill Library Auditorium. This event is open to the public. The D.H. Hill Library will be hosting an event titled Engineering an Engineering Toolset for Girls and Boys Too. This event will be led by Sabelle Darren Guler. She is the founder of Technikio, a company which offers a series of toolkits which allow consumers to embed electronics into anything, with the intention to fill the gap of hands-on science and engineering products for children, especially those for young girls. In this program, she will discuss her research and testing strategies for designing a tool set that is girl-centric and gender-neutral. This event will be Thursday in the sandbox of the DHL Library and will take place from 3 to 4 in the afternoon. This program is made possible in part through the Diversity Mini Grant from NC State's Office of Institutional Equity and Diversity. This event is open to the public. There will be a 5K fundraising event occurring on Centennial Campus this Saturday. NC State Veterinary Hospital Iron Dog is a 5K run and a 1.5-mile dog walk to raise proceeds for patients at the veterinary hospital whose owners may not be able to afford treatment financially. 
The proceeds raised through registrations and donations are presented to clients in $500 grants for pets which have a good long-term prognosis. If they were able to just help one animal and its family, the mission of Iron Dog would be fulfilled. This fundraising 5K will be held from 8 to 12 on Saturday morning, and you may register at irondog5k.com. And if that's not enough running for you, there will be another 5K event occurring on Centennial Campus later that day. The Run Dance Glow of 2016 is hosted by the Inner Residence Council in partnership with Habitat for Humanity. It consists of a 5K run for charity, lit entirely by glow sticks, which covers three miles of roads and trails on NC State Centennial Campus. The night culminates in an after-party blacklight concert Concert on the Engineering Oval. The website and registration are the same and can be found at irc.ncsu.edu slash glow. NC State on-campus residents get in free. Off-campus students, faculty, and staff have a $5 registration fee. Community members not affiliated with NC State have a $15 registration fee. Again, the Run Dance Glow will be Saturday, April 2nd from 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. I hope one or more of these events caught your interest. If you had any questions or any events you would like to promote on the community calendar, you may send your request to publicaffairs at w. WKNC.org. This has been the Community Calendar. I'm Peter Swazeni, wishing you all a great week ahead. So, Nick, I think women are awesome. It'll be a shame to see International Women's Month go. I like celebrating myself, obviously, but something that is exciting, I think, is that in Two days will be the start of April, which means April Fool's Day. Are you going to be fooling anybody? Oh, gosh, I sure would love to. I've always had, uh, you know, I've always had the idea to prank somebody with uh, soap and uh, Oreos instead of, like, the cream, but I've never been proactive enough to pull it off. That's pretty, that's pretty harsh. But, listeners, if you think that Nick should be proactive enough or do you, if you think he will give somebody soap poisoning... Tweet us at WKNC underscore E. Yeah, underscore EOT. For April Fools, actually, um, in France, for April 1st, they do this thing called uh, Le Poisson d'Afrique, which means the fish of April. And you try to pin, like tape a paper fish to the back of people without them noticing. And you try to see like how long uh, they will go. And, if, and then if they keep the fish on the their back for a while they are the fish of april and it's like a funny thing and that's how they celebrate american april fool's day because it's an american holiday obviously do they, uh, do they have somebody that goes around the next day and collects fish off the back of people to trade in for points i wish no that'd be they it's paper fish and you like color them and it's just a, a fun activity or maybe that's only what you do in high school americanized french classes not sure. But either way, I'd like to thank Kevin Cronk, Nick Weaver, Jamie Halla, Saif Hassan, and Peter Svazeni for contributing. As always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know on Twitter at WKNC underscore EOT. And be sure to check out our blog and podcast at WKNC-EOT.tumblr.com. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next Wednesday right here on WKNC. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Yertha Donisjorg. And I'm Nick Weaver. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.